Hi everyone, welcome back to the Eat Real to Heal podcast. I'm Nicolette Richet and I am your host. And on today's show, I am so, so thrilled to have Dr. Hans Deal on our show. Now, Dr. Deal was chosen as one of America's 20 superheroes of the health movement. And Dr. Hans Diel, he directs the Lifestyle Medicine Institute in Loma Linda, and he lectures at the College of Medicine at the University of Illinois at Rockford, and also at the School of Medicine of Loma Linda University in California. Now, Hans has so much experience in the lifestyle medicine world. He offers more than 25 years of leadership in this emerging field, lifestyle medicine is an area of medicine which is still very much unrecognized by the majority of medical doctors out there who truly only look at the diagnosis of the disease and then the treatment via often pharmaceutical drugs, through surgery, through chemo, through radiation, and often they're not trained or they fail to recognize that you have to consider the whole human being. You have to consider their entire lifestyle. So where do they live? Do they like their job? Are they in a healthy relationship? What's their mindset? What is uh, you know the food that they eat? Which definitely on our Eat Real to Heal podcast, we know that food is the ultimate foundation of health. But even when you can have your food correctly right for you, But if you have ongoing stress in your life due to work or relationships or not fulfilling your desires and dreams or feeling suppressed and oppressed, then that can put a lot of stress on the body. If you smoke but have an optimal diet, that also isn't great for your overall health. If you are staying up till three in the morning, like I sometimes do when I'm trying to get podcasts out and trying to do research for my PhD and juggle our five businesses, well, that's not optimal as well. I know I feel the best when I go to bed at 10 o'clock and I wake up at six o'clock. And as much as I've tried to say I'm a night owl and I can stay up all hours of the evening, I know that catches up with me. So lifestyle medicine is considering all aspects of your life. And when your medical practitioners and your medical team address that, then you have the best chance of healing yourself, of reversing disease, and of staying disease free. So this is an emerging field and Dr. Hansdale has led the charge in lifestyle medicine. His pioneering efforts as an epidemiologically trained lifestyle interventionist with the Coronary Health Improvement Project, otherwise known as CHIP, has shown how simple lifestyle changes can prevent, arrest, and facilitate the reversal of many of our largely lifestyle-related diseases as we chatted about. Now, epidemiological studies. It's important to note what those are. And that's when we're looking at large populations and often over a long period of time. So it's a longitudinal study as well. And when we look at large populations, that's when we're able to say, well, we know when people eat predominantly a lifestyle or a plant-based diet, we know that the majority of people in that study are going to live longer, they're gonna live well, and they're gonna live free of disease. Now, there are several studies over the last 
few decades, and in fact, over the last 100 years, that has proven that over and over again. Now, we don't always get to choose what studies are presented at medical school to medical doctors. So a lot, often a lot of these um, studies are not read and they're not, the data is not used when doctors go to med school. So we talk about this with Dr. Hans Deal in this podcast. Another thing that's important to understand about these, I can barely say it, epidemiological studies, these population-based studies, is that once you know that they're looking at an entire population, never again will you say, well, my grandma used to have, you know, a brandy every day at two o'clock and a cigarette, you know, pack of cigarettes a day and she lived to 107. Ultimately, if large populations of people drank hard liquor every single day or beer or wine and they smoked a pack of cigarettes every day and they had a poor diet, well, they're not all going to live a long time. One or two people might. And of course, it's what does their lifestyle say about that? What enabled them to live to be 107, but still engage in those high risk behaviors? But what we'll see is that large populations of people will actually die earlier. They'll have more diagnosed diseases, they'll be on more medications and so on. So this podcast is so important for understanding how important these population-based studies are. Dr. Hansdale is a wealth of knowledge. I met him at the Plantrition Conference back in 2018 in California. I'll be going again this year, coming up soon in September. I'm so excited to be at this conference and when I met Hans he was given a prestigious award for his dedication his hard work in this field for so long advancing the knowledge that food is medicine and that lifestyle is also medicine as well so CHIP, the program I was talking about, the Coronary Health Improvement Project, it has over 50,000 graduates and it's the results of a randomized clinical CHIP trial that has been published in 17 peer-reviewed medical journals. So when you read this study, it's really, really hard to deny the fact that we have to consider our entire lifestyle. Now, Dr. Hans Dale is also an author. He has authored Health Power and Dynamic Health and Dynamic Living book and workbook, which he co-authored with Eileen Ludington. It has sold over 2 million copies in 17 different languages, so that says a lot. He's been an invited guest um, for his second year in a row with World Congress on Weight Management in Chicago. He earned his doctorate in health science and an MPH in public health nutrition from Loma Linda University. Now, please welcome me in bringing Dr. Hans Dale onto our Eat Real to Heal podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. And if you did, please share it with everybody and let us know what you think. So enjoy the show. Be well. Welcome, Hans, to our Eat Real to Heal podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Glad to be here. Very good, very good. And Hans, um, today we're going to be talking so much about um, food as medicine, about nutrition as medicine, and what that means to lead a nutritarian lifestyle. But what I'm really fascinated about is how 
you ended up in this world because you were trained in health sciences. Is that correct? Uh, that's right. Yes. And you have a master's in public health as well. Uh, that's right. Okay. And so when you were going to school and you, you know, what made you want to get into this field and study um, in these areas? Well, I tell you, I was waiting to get into medical school and uh, then a door opened for me to join a new concept. And that was the concept of health sciences in that the uh, recognition became stronger that many of our chronic diseases, our molecular diseases are largely lifestyle related. And so when this program opened up, it was about the same time that I was reading in the Reader's Digest an article about the uh, Valley of Beautiful Widows. And I was fascinated by this article because it talked about the highest rates of heart disease were in this valley area in Karelia in Finland, where many of the women became widows at the age of 35 and 40, 45 years of age because their husbands died from heart attacks, highest rates of heart attacks. And then it talked about the idea that a young physician epidemiologist uh, had been asked by these desperate women in this portion of Finland to come and help them to do something about preventing this uh, killer disease, heart disease. And so he came in and uh, he uh, helped these women to understand that the data was emerging more and more around the world that many of these uh, deaths from heart disease were largely related to smoking and to high blood pressure and high cholesterol numbers, and that uh, what was needed was a behavioral change. Now, these women were eager to do it. And so he went to the different, different villages and picked one of the leaders among the women and trained them to talk about changing their diet, doing something about smoking, doing something about high salt consumption with regard to high blood pressure. And over the next 25 years, when the data came out in 1999, <laughs> the results were absolutely fabulous uh, because they found that the heart disease death rate had decreased by 73%. This is unheard of. Wow. And then also they found that over those 25 years, the life extension of the population among men had increased by eight years. Again, it's unheard of. So, you know, these were the early days uh, in 1970, 1971 to when I was reading the article there and it reaffirmed within me that I needed to go into a more progressive understanding of these chronic diseases and that maybe I ought to switch from medicine to health science, lifestyle medicine. That's what I did. And it has become a wonderful journey because of the professional satisfaction that you have when you see people actually turning their diseases off. You can reverse diabetes. You can reverse high blood pressure. You can reverse high cholesterol. You can reverse high, uh, you know, cholesterol and related uh, heart disease rates. I mean, you can do something about this, but you have to do it beyond just prescribing medications to alleviate the symptoms of discomfort. You have to help people to tackle the causes of these diseases, and that's what we eat and how we live. So. I, you know, and I have, of course, obviously fully agree with you because that's what we teach through Richer Health and through our restaurants and Green Mustache. Now, um, 
but I know for people who are listening to this for the very first time, and you know, last year I sat in government meetings um, where they had $29 million to distribute to organizations that wanted to tackle type 2 diabetes, and nobody at the table, no one, even knew that you could reverse diabetes. They were talking about getting people on their insulin and yeah, other yeah, diabetes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it how is, is, is this... It's really too bad, isn't it, that uh, we have very little understanding uh, uh, that we receive a medical school that goes beyond the pharmaceutical approach to these diseases. Yeah, it's, and, but has it changed in the time that you've been doing this? Like, have you seen an improvement or do you see it getting more and more siloed? Because sometimes I fluctuate between hope and despair in this field where I feel <laughs> like, okay, we're making progress. People are learning. We have these documentaries. We have, you know, people like yourself, like, you know, you were named one of America's 20 superheroes of the health movement and we have you know you you started the lifestyle medicine institute in loma linda you're teaching physicians i mean with all the work that you've been doing over these years do you feel like we're making progress or are we going backwards well nicolette let me tell you when i started this in the 1980s um the winds were blowing into my face uh, if I turn around, you'll see the spears in my back. And they came largely from my medical colleagues to whom this whole concept that you could possibly do something about these chronic diseases in turning them around was really quackery to them. It was just wishful thinking. To them, that was impossible because they were totally uh, zeroed in and focused on the medical pharmaceutical uh, approach to these diseases. And they knew that the only thing they could do is make people feel better, but they would never get them off the medications. You put them on medication for high blood pressure and the people, when they die, they're still on medication. You have people that you put on medication for diabetes and when they die, they're still on insulin and medications for diabetes. So they, they realized that these diseases could not be altered and they were you know, very, very uncomfortable with uh, my orientation that yes, you can change these diseases if you change the habits of people. And so that was in the 1980s and, and over the next 20, 30 years, but things have changed a lot. The wind is now beginning to blow from the back. Uh, it's much, much easier. Uh, the data is out. There are many, many very, very popular um, Hollywood made videos and, and films uh, that have been produced and they're leaving a mark on the conscience of many, many people. They're beginning to understand there is something better than just looking for the management of symptoms for these chronic diseases. So I think we're moving in the right direction and the uh, fact that we have now a new medical subspecialty called lifestyle medicine. I mean, just think about this. Uh, you can now seek out a physician uh, that is trained in lifestyle medicine and is board certified, which means you have a specialist in lifestyle medicine, just like you have a specialist in cardiology. And these people are trained to help with the educational aspects, just like what you are doing. And this is the part that I think is just so 
you know, the word is phenomenal. And, you know, in, I don't even know, I don't even have a word big enough to describe it, but starting the Lifestyle Medicine Institute where you, you know, where you can train um, these physicians on this and that people can go out there and find a lifestyle medicine practitioner is incredible. Now, I know what some people are going to be asking is, well, what's the difference between a lifestyle medicine practitioner and a functional medicine practitioner or an integrated medicine practitioner? Could you explain that a little bit for the public? Because, you know, the feedback I get is, um, number one, the wait time to work with a functional medicine doctor, um, that people don't know the difference between a lifestyle medicine doctor and a functional medicine doctor. And so people are spending their time trying to figure out um, you know, who to work with. And if you could just mm -hmm. sort of bring some light to, the, mm -hmm. to that, yeah. that would be well, we, we value our colleagues in these disciplines. Uh, the functional medicine people are metabolically oriented. They're cellularly oriented. You know, they're moving uh, the understanding forward. Uh, when it comes to lifestyle medicine, it's a little different. Lifestyle medicine is usually uh, most commonly practiced uh, in working with groups of people uh, because we realize that if you want to change people's uh, understanding, you have to provide education and you do it much, much more effectively and economically more viably if you do it in groups. So lifestyle medicine focuses on uh, providing in-depth intensive education in the area of how to adopt a simpler diet, simpler foods such as uh, you know, fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and maybe a few nuts, simpler foods where you kind of leave out as much as possible, foods that have nutrition labels. Did you get that one? So did you so leave out the foods that have nutrition labels, correct? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, most yeah. people are stunned when I say that because everybody says, well, we're going to be trained to read labels. And I'm going one step further. Maybe we should perhaps leave those foods with nutrition labels out as sort of some special items uh, because any time that you have a nutrition label, that means the food has been processed, the food has been manipulated, the food has been made to uh, increase profitability. When you go from potatoes to potato chips, yeah. you no longer eat potatoes when you eat potato chips. You basically eat 65% is fat. Yeah. So and you, you don't know, get fiber so and you don't get the other, you know, 80 plus minerals and nutrients in there as well. Yeah, yeah that's know. right. And, and so basically in lifestyle medicine, we're focusing on a simple diet. We're focusing on a daily uh, exercise program. Uh, the idea of 10,000 steps a day is a very good program. We're looking at getting more adequate sleep. Um, we are looking for stress management. Uh, we are looking for finding purpose for living, uh, perhaps uh, becoming more altruistically oriented. So lifestyle medicine then really focuses on uh, disciplines that have been carefully documented, they're evidence-based, that you can change these chronic diseases through lifestyle changes. And that's what we call lifestyle medicine, where you combine the best of medicine with the best of public health, with the best of education, and with the best of personal care. Yeah. And I love the part about, you know, doing this together in groups because that is what is so powerful. And do you think that was one of the big contributors to that um, study in Finland within mm. the Valley of Widows is the fact that all of these people were united by the fact that their husbands mm. were dying. Um, and, you know, like mm. that is an incredible, mm. incredible result. 73% improvement mm. 
living eight years longer? Like, how do we replicate that now in our communities? Yeah, very good question. Let me tell you a story. Um, after I finished my, uh, my program, my doctorate in health science and my master in public health, I received uh, an invitation to join a place called the Pritikin Longevity Center in Santa Barbara. I was somewhat um, intrigued by what they were doing there, but I wasn't quite sure that this was the right thing to do because they talked about a low-fat diet by going down to 10%. The American diet was 40% at that time. They were very radical, really, in a sense, and they tried to uh, minimize sugar and salt, and they basically fed people very simple foods, things that we talk about today like fruits and vegetables and whole grains and legumes and very little fats and oils and grease and uh, sugar and salt, very simple foods and then daily exercise and then a very intensive education program there where they receive three lectures a day to help people understand why they should do it. And then they had cooking demonstrations of how to do it and they would walk under the supervision of uh, people. And what I saw there was absolutely amazing to me. It was just like he had gone to some kind of a miracle place and yet the science was all there. The science was delineated very carefully in lectures. And um, so then I got the idea that if we would only teach people these concepts of healthful living, then they would do it and everything would be fine. And so I did an experiment. I took three ladies that were overweight, they had high blood pressure, they had high cholesterol, they had diabetics, and I told them and showed them and showed them my slides and everything else. And I took them one person at a time for four weeks. I met twice a week. And after four weeks, I felt depressed. What? <laughs> <laughs> I felt depressed. That's right. And so I said, I said to my wife, I don't know. I feel depressed. And she said, honey, you don't even know what depression is. I said, you're probably right. But she said, look, I have no results. And I've done my very, very best. And she said, you know, did you charge them? I said, no. Oh, well, maybe that's the problem. And then I said, no, maybe it's something else. So I have, happened to uh, talk to a psychologist. And he said to me, have you ever thought of putting these three women into a group? Mm. And, I said, hmm. and the psychologist said to me, that's where the magic is. People help each other. People uh, look for accountability structures. People are interested in sharing what they have discovered with others. And when you are the doctor and you're in a one-on-one -on -one relationship and you have your white coat on, half the time they don't even understand what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Which is really true because, you know, we learn to be professionals, we express ourselves professionally, and then we, after a while, begin to realize that we're no longer communicating very effectively with the average person, you know, with the good people out there. And so I began to realize that the answer had to be found in group uh, teaching. And so when I left this live-in program, this was a residential center where people would come, you know, 50 to 100 people. They would spend their four weeks there and they would do the blood pressure. They would do the cholesterol checks. They would do everything every week. I mean, mm -hmm. I could not believe it. I thought to myself, why do they take the cholesterol every week? It takes at least a year before a person changes. How little did I know? Within one week, cholesterol levels dropped five, six, seven percent. After four weeks, 20, 25 percent, more so than sometimes you find with medication. I was totally shocked. And when you came into the uh, center there, into this clinic, uh, where you had 50 to 100 people uh, in, in attending these lectures and uh, being fed a very simple diet, uh, you entered 
they said, you're entering now a no smoking zone, drop your cigarettes here. I mean, they changed everything all at once. And because they changed everything at once, they had these phenomenal results, which was exactly contrary to what we were taught in psychology, where they taught us, you only change one habit at a time. They said, "Uh uh-uh, you change everything at once in a protective environment. We are right here. We're going to feed you. We're taking care of you. And you will see the results in four weeks. And that really got me on my journey to taking the develop the CHIP program, that's the Complete Health Improvement Program, and taking it to the communities and uh, enrolling people. In Rockford, we had 5,000 people enrolled in the Rockford, Illinois CHIP program, the Complete Health Improvement Program. And we had results every four weeks. And they were phenomenal, just like you had almost as good as when you had them in a residential center where you just lock them up and you feed them and you do everything for them. This time, we go to the community and we say, here are some of the data, here are the lectures, here is the slides, here's the scientific data. Uh, what do you want to do with that? So when you come, when you go home, are you going to make some changes? When you go to the restaurant next time, are you going to make some changes? And you see, so we actually, maybe, maybe we brainwashed them. I don't know, but, you know, it's, it's the group dynamics that we then continued uh, over time where the people meet every month and often, more often in restaurants and in hospitals and so on. And it was a real joy ride for me, Nicolette. I mean, it's unbelievable. I bet. And what I love so much about um, this program is the fact that you're showing it doesn't have to be done in a center somewhere. You don't have to pay tens of thousands of dollars to go stay somewhere, which in some cases, when you find it hard to change your habits, if you don't have community, if you want to change your health around quickly, um, either because you have to, because you have a looming surgery or you want to get off your meds, you know, I can see wanting to go to a place like the Pritikam Longevity Center. But, you know, for the majority of people, they're not going to have the funds or the time or ability to do that. So it's incredible to see that you can do this together in a community, an extended community. Um, And it's similar to what we do at our wellness center as well, because we have people that come from all over North America. They come, they stay with us for only three days and we teach them. It's like lots of lectures. They get their hands, you know, dirty in the cooking. They're covered in beets, you know, as they're shredding them. Some people don't even know how to chop a potato. They don't even know what a potato is. (laughs) No, you're absolutely right. No, you're absolutely right. You know, what you do is you provide a jumpstart for people. Exactly. You give them a basic orientation, a reorientation. You give them new glasses to look at uh, food and habits differently. And that's what these residential centers do. Because I began to realize, you know, after they've been there for four weeks and they were really very well treated, everything was done for them. Uh, But then what happens when they go back home? You know, it's the same refrigerator, the same friends, the same Same habit. Same physicians who actually question their wisdom of spending tens of thousands of dollars. I mean, really. And so, you know, they begin to weaken after a while and worse the reinforcement. And so I began to realize I needed to change whole communities. And so that's what we have done. We go into the community and we try to work with the restaurants. We try to work with the hospital. We try to work with everybody that wants to work with us. And as we do, uh, it gives you the opportunity to to uh, move towards lasting changes. Yeah. 
No, it is really brilliant, this program and how it's designed that way. And are you finding that when you, like, how do you find it when the people who participate in your program and showing them evidence-based medicine that there's a relationship between diet and disease? And here you've been trained in this. You have studied in this intensely. You read the data. You read the medical journals. What happens when these people come back to you after they have seen their physician and they come back and they say things like, well, I don't know. My doctor said that there's no relationship between diet and disease. Like, what do you say to people then? Because I get this all the time with my clients when they go back to their doctor that they've been seeing for 10, 15 years. Well, it's very understandable. Uh, you know, physicians at that moment feel almost uh, like they're, well, you know, the uh, royal robe has been dropped. <laughs> they feel sort of a little bit uh, uh, disrobed. Uh, uh, you know, they were the gods, uh, they had all the answers, uh, and the answers were always found in mechanical and pharmaceutical means. And all of a sudden, uh, this person that they have been treated for the last 10 years, and the diabetes was never changed, really, it just was more medication and more medication. And all of a sudden, they come back to see the physician, they're kind of feeling very awkward. I mean, they're feeling almost taciturnly, sort of silently, um, what shall I say, attacked uh, about their concepts that have uh, been well-intended but didn't really produce anything in the patient. Now the patient comes back after four weeks, after three days, after making some changes like they're doing with your program, and all of a sudden the physician has been asked to reduce the insulin, reduce the medication for high blood pressure because the blood pressure is too low. It's now becoming dangerously low. The blood sugar is dropping so far below the level where it should be that they have to reduce medication. And the physicians are very, I mean, uneasy about this. They've never seen this before. And so, you know, it will take some time as we are moving more and more towards providing uh, nutritional therapeutic concepts into the medical school curricula. And you're doing that right now. Is that something that you're actively doing? Is that something, a change I really, really want to see happen in my lifetime is that the medical school curriculum does change? Well, it will take some time. Um, the Lifestyle Medicine, the American College of Lifestyle Medicine has just uh, set aside $250,000 to some of the experts in lifestyle medicine, in nutrition and medicine, to write 1,000 questions that could be inserted by the commission that writes the medical school national board examinations. You see, medical schools teach to, te to, to the test, right? Right. right. So they want to make sure that the students uh, pass the national board examination, then they are full-fledged physicians. And so if it's not a question that appears in the national board, medical schools oftentimes don't seem to think that they have the time to teach nutrition as an example. Now, with the $250,000 um, money being raised by the American College of Lifetime Medicine to find experts that will write 1,000 questions dealing with nutritional therapeutic issues. I mean, just think about this. For every question that you write, you get $1,000. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, wow. it tells you that this has to be done very, very well and right. There's a lot of sophistication involved here. So with that coming up, I think 
uh, we can see some um, movement in the right direction. I can give you another example that uh, I have been working with the last four or five years in Lithuania. Yeah, tell me about that. I'm really excited to hear about this. Well, as you know, Lithuania is a small country uh, uh, in Europe. Uh, it used to be under the domination of uh, foreign powers. First, the uh, German so-called empire uh, kind of uh, absorbed uh, Lithuania. And then came after World War II came, the Russians came in and they took it over. And then uh, finally, in 1995, uh, actually, it was 1991, uh, the uh, Russian Empire basically, uh, well, let me say that differently. Uh, then in 1991, the Soviet Union collapsed and uh, Lithuania became uh, a free country. It became a democracy. It brought in free market uh, concepts and everything began to change. And as the Russians, as the Soviet Union was kicked out, as the East left, the country, the West came in. Guess how? How? It came in with Western products. Oh, yes. Of the area, particularly the area of foods. And it whoppered the whole country. They hadn't seen anything like this. M&Ms and Doreos and French fries and, and uh, cookies and, you know, all these kind of things. They came in and the people just loved it. Because it's so addictive. That's the problem. Yeah. I don't even know if they love it, is that their brains instantaneously become addicted to it. That is exactly right. And they felt they had to make up for lost time, and they did. So the lithium population became more overweight. Diabetes began to gradually emerge. And then over the next um, 20 years, the death from heart disease rates had gone up to 50 to 60% of all the deaths. Now, we assume that it was probably more like 30 to 35% in 1991 when the Russians, the Soviet Union collapsed. So what we have seen is a significant increase in these chronic diseases such as heart disease, strokes, uh, cancers, diabetes, overweight, and so on. And so the country, they only have about um, less than 3 million people. Uh, they uh, had some discussions with me and they said, look, we don't have the money to bring in bypass surgery. Uh, it's uh, $150,000 for each bypass. Uh, we just can't afford it. We are a small country. Uh, we don't have these margins available for us. What can we do? Can we train the doctors to become lifestyle medicine specialists? Well, we said maybe that's a possibility. Um, and so then we went to the medical school in uh, Lithuania at the university there. And they said, well, we're not really that uh, interested in that. It doesn't really make sense economically for us to make all these people healthy, if you can really do that, as you claim. Uh, so they said, well, we're not really quite open to that. And so I went to the uh, university president and I said, I'm proposing that we create a new health professional you know, we have medical people that take care of disease very effectively, infectious diseases, perfect, diagnosing disease, perfect, uh, uh, emergency care, perfect. But when it comes to these chronic diseases, such as the modern killer diseases, what are we going to do for them? And he said, well, maybe we should talk to the dean of the School of Public Health, because it's really a public health issue, isn't it? 
Well, I said, yeah, in a way it is. So we spent some time there and ultimately it ended up to become a master's degree in lifestyle medicine. They have now graduated 60 people. Many of them are physicians. So they bring the best to the table, both the medical background and the new concepts of uh, education and psychology and communication. And uh, now we're planning to uh, work with the government in due time to let that uh, progress to become a doctorate in lifestyle medicine, where these doctors then would really take care of the chronic diseases in contrast to the infectious disease and emergency care that would be provided by traditional medicine. And so they've been working on this now, <clears throat> and there are big debates within the government now. It's a political football because the medical profession doesn't want to uh, relinquish the allocations uh, of money from the government for treating these diseases, which is now supposed to go to the doctors of lifestyle medicine. So there's a big political debate going on there, but I think within the next one or two years, we will see that the um, change is going to be made and this will become a new model of how nations can take care of both infectious diseases, chronic diseases, all of these diseases by using different approaches. So this is incredible. And uh, are we seeing anything like this being developed in Canada or the US right now that's the equivalent? <laughs> well, you know, I started my CHIP program in Canada um, many, many years ago in the 1980s. And we took it from city to city to city, even to Ottawa. And we have one of the epidemiologists from the government sit in my program for four weeks for 16 lectures, each lecture one and a half hours long. And he saw and measured everything before and after the risk factors. And he wrote a beautiful recommendation to the Minister of Health for the province of Ontario, as well as to the government, uh, the, the whole government, what do you call this, the federal government? No, what do you call this? Yeah. The federal government, yep. Yeah, and to the federal government, and yet nothing ever happened. So mm -hmm. um, institutions have a difficult time changing because these are usually uh, become political issues where money is involved and so on, just like I suggested to you what's happening right now in Lithuania. So unfortunately, but I am just now getting ready to work with a large group of people uh, that represent many different uh, approaches uh, that are all complementary in turning the uh, diabetes epidemic in Fiji around. Fiji is a small island, as you know, in the South Pacific, and it has less than 1 million people, and uh, diabetes is just uh, the all-time uh, high level there with people walking around on crutches because they're amputees because of the end-stage disease of diabetes. And so we are now hoping to develop uh, Fiji as another national sample so that hopefully we have not only Lithuania in the next four or five years, but also we have Fiji in the next four or five years that can represent models of how small countries who cannot afford these expensive uh, uh, after-the-fact uh, medical interventions and they can actually prevent and they can reverse these diseases through the lifestyle medicine approach. So we're really into a new era now. Yeah, and I think that's interesting that, you know, you have to work over, that you're working overseas on this and getting traction. But I mean, as you know, I was in China last year and we trained almost about 600 physicians there and working with the Ministry really? of Health. 
in the Center for Chronic Disease Control. They did a clinical trial on the therapy that I teach, which is the same as what you teach. And they actually gutted a hospital in Beijing and put stoves in there. It's free for the public. (laughs) I know. It's groundbreaking. I have to send you the photos, Hans, because um, they have these glass fridges where they have these silicone fruits and vegetables to show people the diversity of fruits and vegetables that they need to be eating every week. And then it's free to the public every week. They come in and they learn how to cook real food in a hospital on the ground floor like it's amazing and of course because it's culturally appropriate they dance and sing uh, you know after they cook together and then they eat together and then they pray together and um it's really phenomenal and they're actually building a 150 bed um wellness center to teach lifestyle medicine in Kangbao region and i got to meet with the engineers who were the most beautiful humble caring, kind, questioning people who said, you know, what do you need us to do? How do you need this to be designed? We wanted to make it the best of the best for people who have chronic disease. And the reason China is doing this and is investing into this is because they said their economy will crash from type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. If they don't get it under control within mm-hmm. four years, that's why all this money is being thrown into there. So it's not just small nations, it's huge nations as well that are recognizing this. But it's so sad that we're not seeing the same emphasis on our you know, home mm. territory here in Canada and the U.S. Though well, there is progress being made, I do, I, but it just doesn't feel like it's happening at, you know, from the top down level. Well, let me extend some kudos to you. I mean, that's incredible what you're doing. You need to make that report to the American College of Lifestyle Medicine Convention next year. This is fabulous. You are, what they call this, um, um, not just a revolutionary, but you are um, a bloodless revolutionary. You're creating a revolution uh, that is coming from the heart, a revolution that comes from, it's self-evident. It comes out of recognition of what the evidence, the scientific evidence tells us to do. Uh, This is a great, um, I mean, I didn't really know you were doing all of this. I'm just overawed, Nicolette. Oh, Hunt, I thought we had talked about this before at some point. I wasn't sure. I mean, we just, you know what it is? It's, you know, it's not even that we are actively going out and pursuing this like you are with the CHIP program and with the Lifestyle Medicine Institute. It's really that people are coming to us because they're seeing our clients heal and they're saying, you know, Mm -hmm. how do we bring this to more people? Can you come and teach? And I just say yes and go. So, you know, in one sense, you know, I'm busy running our restaurants and our health consulting company and our wellness center, but you are actively on the ground creating these programs. So we need it to happen both ways, I think, like the way that Mm -hmm. you've been actively it. But the big part for me is, um, and I want to ask you this question around that is, um, how do you, because so, and I know so many people must ask you the same when they come up to you, like one off, they're like, show me the evidence. And what do you say to them when they're like, show me the evidence? Like, what is your best answer to someone? Because for me, I'm like, well, I have 200,000 articles I can show you, but are you going to read them all? So what is besides your book, Health Power, which I think is a really phenomenal book to really break it down and make it so simple. Um, and we have all these documentaries and we have other textbooks and we have journal articles, but what is your, how, how what do you say to someone when they say, show me the evidence? Well, I will tell them, um, Take a look at some of our 85,000 graduates. 
Exactly. Take a look at our articles that have been written on 5,000 people that changed in Rockford. You know, take a look, talk to any one of our graduates. And um, uh, like you said, the scientific evidence is overwhelming. There are libraries, floors filled with articles and books. They all sing the same song. And that is, there's a direct relationship between diet and disease. Mm-hmm. And that uh, diet and disease relationship was very carefully documented in the 1960s and 70s and 80s. Uh, let me give you just a little bit of a background here, uh, which perhaps is not anything new to you, but it helps us to contextualize why there is so much confusion today and so much controversy about which is such an obvious relationship that diet drives disease. And that goes back to the 1950s. 1950, Japan. You couldn't find heart disease in Japan. And so the medical school in Tokyo actually purchased coronary arteries from people who had died from Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore so they could demonstrate to Japanese medical students what killed then every second American. Wow. Like, can you believe that? So the disease was not a disease that is universally uh, found. It, it was virtually impossible to find heart disease in Japan. It was difficult in the 1920s to find heart disease, coronary artery disease in Canada or in the United States. These were very, very rare diseases. Today, they're massive. Every second, every third death today is related to cardiovascular disease, heart disease, and strokes. So coming back to the 1950s, so heart disease not existing in Japan. So then they followed up some of these Japanese people who migrated to Los Angeles and to San Francisco and to, uh, you know, to the United States. And they found that over the next 20, 30 years, these Japanese people who had no disease in Japan had the same rates of heart disease as the American people that lived here. And so they began to realize that this was not a genetic thing where they were protected, but rather it had to do with the environment. It had to do with how they were uh, adjusting to their new um, yeah, environment. And so as the Japanese diet uh, changed of these Japanese people and adopted more to the Western diet, they also then had to pay the price in Western diseases. So this was Japan, 1950. Then you come to 1963, a very famous researcher by the name of Dr. Ansel Keys mm-hmm. undertook a 15-year study in Minnesota where he followed uh, several uh, thousand business people, and he found uh, that at the end of his study, uh, those people that had three particular risk factors that they found had a much higher rate of heart attacks than those who did not. These three risk factors were cholesterol, high cholesterol, high blood pressure, and smoking. So this is helping us now to understand why do people in Japan not have the disease? Because they don't have any cholesterol levels that are above 130, 140, 150. Uh, They had some high blood pressures, and smoking was fairly rare at those days. So that was 1963, and so keys, 
big study on these business people in Minnesota, 1970. Ansel Kiesner is publishing his work on the seven country study where he looked around the world, particularly the European world. And he looked at the data of how people were eating and the disease rates that they have. And he found out he identified uh, several factors that were directly determinants of coronary artery disease. And the two big ones were saturated fat and cholesterol. Now, as you know, saturated fat is almost exclusively found in animal products, but then also in coconut oil and palm oil. So um, apparently there was a relation between saturated fat, which drives the cholesterol in the bloodstream, and that became sort of an identified major finding. And from then on, the National Institutes of Health spent billions of dollars in funding research in Western countries to try to um, document this again and again and again. And on, uh, on uh, you know, it's, what actually happened was that in these studies, they did only find a very weak association between diet and disease because the population diets in these European countries that they looked at had a lot of homogeneity. They were very similar. That is to say, there was not that much difference between the low saturated fat people and the high saturated fat people in these Western countries because they all had a fairly homogeneous, a very similar diet. Are you with me there? Yeah, completely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so this was then sort of a little bit of a causing some questioning about the work of Ansel Keys. So then in the meantime, the National Institutes of Health began to fund metabolic ward studies. These are feeding experiments where they took people, well, they took animals first and they took people and they give them a certain diet and they measure what is the effect on cholesterol, on smoke, on, on, on uh, blood pressure and so on. And they were very, very clear that they found mathematical formulas that predicted if you put that much saturated fat into a diet of a person, after so many days, the cholesterol will go up and up and up to a certain level. And we can also determine what the effect is on polyunsaturated fats and saturated, all of these kind of things and the blood cholesterol. So we had some pretty good idea that uh, you can determine the uh, drivers of this disease, such as high blood pressure and cholesterol by kind of dietary means. And then in the 1978, the Mr. Fit study uh, was published. Uh, Mr. Fit stands for Multiple Risk Factor Intervention Trial. So they were now making efforts to change the cholesterol. They were trying to make uh, changes in the population to uh, do something about smoking and about blood pressure. They enrolled 350,000 people. Can you imagine? It's and a huge study, yeah. 350,000 people in the Mr. Fit study. And the results are documented perhaps in one sentence, and that is that 87% of the heart disease could be prevented before age 65 if people would lower their cholesterol below 180 by eating differently and get their blood pressures down below 125. They said if people don't smoke and people don't have diabetes and they just make those two changes to get the cholesterol down and the blood pressure, you can avoid 87% of all the heart disease and strokes before age 65. So we had some very, very clear understandings that diet was a driver of these diseases. The Heart Association came up uh, and pronounced that uh, it was very difficult to find heart disease in any societies where the cholesterol levels were 
below 160. They said if you bring your cholesterol levels down below to below 160, which in Canada would be less than 4.0, right? Exactly, yeah. Right? If you bring it down to that level, it's very difficult to find any heart disease in these societies. Well, that was what we had identified, documented. That was the evidence in the 1980s. And then along came Mr. Reagan, the beloved mm -hmm. American president. And he said, I don't see any reason why we as a government should pay all for these research projects, which largely benefit the pharmaceutical industry. Why do we let them pay for their own research? Are you with me there? I'm with you, yeah. That is, is a game changer financially, yeah. but also in terms of objectivity. Because now you have vested interest groups that are funding studies that are promoting their products. Right? Yeah. And yeah, so all and of a sudden, you lose the objectivity that was no longer to the same extent given in that researchers and people that write up uh, results, they're always becoming their subject to being possibly influenced by the one that provides the money. It's a very natural thing. Uh, uh, you know, no one is really immune to these kind of things. And so then what happened in the last 20, 30 years now, now you have all these studies are coming out. Well, there are studies here and there uh, that now have different results. And now they talk about, we have now the new sciences. The old science, well, it was old science in the 1960s and 70s and 80s, funded by the government, funded by NIH. Now we have the new science. And the new science says, well, you don't have to really worry about uh, fats in the diet, really. You don't have to worry about uh, butter and cheese and, and meat and, and eggs. So don't worry about it. Uh, we have now new rules of the heart. And all of a sudden, uh, with the so-called new science, we're not questioning the old established uh, relationships. And people today become very confused. They well, I have to die anyway. I might as well eat whatever I want, whatever tastes good. And in the process, we are surrendering the op opportunity for a functionally effective, service-oriented life uh, until, you know, you know, old age. And what we have done today because of uh, a lot of uh, uh, medical interventions, we have extended people's life somewhat, somewhat, not very much, but somewhat uh, in keeping them sick longer. And that's the big part there that people need to understand because a lot of people will bring that up with me and they say, well, we're living longer and longer now, where in fact, we actually see that um, the societies were living quite a long time before, and the only difference between this, that, and now is that people are dying a slow, painful, long death because they're dealing with all of these symptoms at such an early age. Like now we're seeing, you know, people in their 30s that have diseases that weren't usually prevalent until, you know, you were in your 60s, 70s, or 80s, but now 30-year-olds. And even I get calls from people in their 20s that have the same diseases that their grandparents would often, you know, develop later later on in life. And it's you know, it's shocking. So yeah, just because we are living longer, we're not living better necessarily. Yeah. Well, let me throw a little curveball here too. <laughs> and that is, uh, <laughs> you know, this whole idea that we're living longer is, uh, that could be really questioned. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. What we have shown is that uh, people a hundred years ago, they lived to be 49 on average. 
a baby born then had a life expectancy of 49. Baby born in Canada and in the United States today probably has more like 78 to 80 years gender specific, right? So we say, okay, you see, it was 49 then. Now it's more like 79. That means we have gained 30 years. And you see, these chronic diseases, they only happen to uh, appear in old age. Therefore, um, we always had these diseases, but people just didn't live long enough to express them, right? That's a, that's yeah. a very good argument that people use. What they overlook is the fact that 100 years ago, every fifth baby died before the age of one. And exactly. that, lowered the, that lowered dramatically the life expectancy at birth. You see, yeah. now, when I look at a statistician, when I look at, an, as an epidemiologist, when I look at uh, uh, the life expectancy of a person who then was 60 years of age and a person is today 60 years of age, the person then, 100 years ago, 60 years of age, had almost the same life expectancy as we have today, and we had no medical care 100 years ago to speak of. Exactly. And that's an important part that people need to realize. And it's hard because, you know, I'm doing my PhD right now. My, my head is in all the medical journals. Mm -hmm. um, I just took another um, stats course um, it, for my PhD program. I did one for my master's program. I did a stats course, a statistics yeah. course for anybody who doesn't know what that is for my undergraduate. And it is so hard to wrap our heads around how we interpret the data as well because of the fact that depending on what terms you use depending on the language it can tell you something it can make you believe something completely different mm. and so where do people go to then um for for understanding of these studies when they come out because it's ex like i'll bring an example and it's the lovely study that came out about red wine and resveratrol mm -hmm. And, you know, the same studies have been done on chocolate, the same studies have been mm -hmm. done on animal protein mm -hmm. and animal fat, where, you know, we get these studies and then they're interpreted by the media and then people run out there buying bottles of wine and, yeah. and bushels of chocolate saying, well, yeah. it, the studies are good for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it, it is really sad. Uh, you know, uh, let me sort of uh, reinforce some of the uh, uh, thoughts that you have expressed. Um, you know, when I went to school, we were told, uh, if you take a look at a large person, you know, maybe use the word fat person, person that is very large, uh, uh, probably 60 years of age, uh, be sure you check for the blood sugar levels because they could be diabetics, right? Okay. Well, you know, it's true that diabetes and obesity run in parallel, right? Uh, probably one uh, leads to the other. And so uh, when I went to school many years ago, we were told, be sure you check these people out when they're 60 years plus and they're overweight. Now I'm looking at people that are 40 years of age that are large. I'm looking at people that are 30 years of age and are large. I'm looking at people that are 20 years of age and large. I'm looking at 15 year olds that are large and they have diabetes. Just like what you said. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just unbelievable. In 1945, diabetes was very rare in this country. A 60-year-old man then had a 4% chance of becoming a diabetic. Now it's 30%. 30% of the people in this country in America that are over 60 years of age have diabetes. Uh, diabetes has increased in the last 30 years by 400%. You know, Nicolette, this is not a disease of genetics. 
No, it's it not. To me, they always say, well, my father was diabetic, my grandfather was diabetic, so therefore I am diabetic. I'm sorry. It's not just the genes that you pass on. You also pass on the recipes from one family to the next. The lifestyle, exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so you may see the same thing with breast cancer. 1960, one out of 20 women would develop breast cancer. Now it's one in seven women. Mm-hmm. I mean, think about this. You know, think about obesity. Uh, until 1975, 1975, the average chair produced in America was 17 inches wide. That's probably about 41 or so centimeters. Roughly, yep, yep. Yeah. So the chair was, uh, for, for about 100 years, they found that the chairs didn't really change all that much. The average width of a chair was about 17 inches or about 40 some centimeters. And then 1980, 1990, everything changed. Now, when you look to an American average chair, it's 24 inches. That means it's seven inches times two and a half, seven times, that's about 20 centimeters larger. I mean, it's unbelievable. And why do they make these larger chairs? Because they have more lumber to use up that comes from Canada? No, no. They need to facilitate the enlarging derriere. Yes. Yeah, it's, you know what, and it's so sad. And the thing is, is that, you know, just coming back to how we interpret these studies for the average person, you know, it's why we need these lifestyle medicine practitioners because they need to just clearly state to their patients, hey, I want you to eat real food. And what is real food? Then they have to define it for them. And I think the simplest definition, what you talked about in the beginning is eat food that doesn't have a label. And that's, mm-hmm. you know, I, I kind of joke with when I give a talk to, you know, a group and I'll come on stage and I'll just say, hey, you know what? I'm going to teach you everything in one sentence and yeah. it's <laughs> no label. Yeah. And that's it. The talk is done. Let's go, you know, yeah. chop potatoes and some tomatoes and they laugh but then you know what they do they come back to me and since I started doing that about two years ago people have come to me and said thank you so much for that piece of advice because it has saved them so much like mental energy from having to make decisions yes you know it makes it so that they just go you know what I don't even like they can watch the documentaries, read the books, but they don't need to sit there and analyze all the studies and they can just go to the store. They don't need to read the nutrition labels and it really is common sense. So for physicians out there who are listening to this podcast, um, cause I know we have many that do, um, you keep it really simple. And, and I mean, is that something that a physician can say to their patients is eat food without a label? Because when we met Hans, it was at the plant, based healthcare nutrition conference mm-hmm. in California. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting because I took a cab home with one of the physicians who was learning this for the first time. She uh-huh. kept saying to me, is what all of these scientists and doctors on stage is what they're saying true? And I would say, yes, these are your peers. <laughs> like they're not up there giving you false information. Like these are published journal articles, but she really could not wrap her head around it. So mm-hmm. in the three days that we were there on her computer, she designed a one page, like super easy to read document. And it was so sweet because we're sitting in the taxi cab and she, you know, she knew the work that I did. And she's like, wow, like you're so lucky that you're not a medical doctor and that you can teach people this. And I said, no, 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 you can teach people this as well. And so she had had printed, she pulled out of her bag, this one page document she printed. Mm -hmm. And she's like, how do I give this to my patients though? Because I don't want them to think I'm a quack. (laughs) 
And I just like, and but it was such a beautiful, honest question because mm-hmm. I understand the handcuffs that these physicians have. Mm-hmm. They're you know they're under a licensing body mm-hmm. yes. that you know can really take the carpet out from underneath their feet, like in one swift move. So I do understand that these physicians do have to be careful, but you've seen to be able to design the formula for these physicians to be able to practice. So what is that formula that you can share with our audience? Like, is it as simple as saying, just don't eat food with a label? Well, you know, there is a second line that you have to use, however, because meat doesn't have any labels. Mm-hmm. Right? Good. Yeah, I mean, processed, processed meat, I mean, if you have sausages, you can read the label and it's about 80% fat. When you have a hot dog, that's about 85% fat. You know, these are all high fat foods that are deficient in fiber and, and so on and so forth. Um, but um, uh, the, the meat industry has done its very, very best to resist that they have to put out labels of what their food is like. So most people don't understand that when you have a sirloin steak, they think, well, I have to have, a, have, to have my protein, right? Well, mm-hmm. wait a minute. You know, when you eat a sirloin steak, that can be up to 75% fat. And it's only 25% protein. You're doing much, much better if you begin to eat some beans, right? Because that's really, if you're concerned about protein, (laughs) besides, you don't have to worry about protein anyway, because we're probably getting much, much, much too much as it is. You know, but so these are some of the things that we need to help people understand. Be careful. Uh, Use foods that have nutrition labels judiciously. And then when it comes to uh, meats uh, and animal, anything that has, um, uh, you know, that, you know, comes from a corpse. Yeah. I mean, really, you know, I mean, I don't want to use inflammatory language, but uh, it's really true, isn't it? Uh, We've become so focused on these meats and we have totally overlooked the fact that we have almost doubled the consumption of animal products over the last 100 years. So we shouldn't really be surprised that we have such an abundance of these chronic diseases. So what do I do with a physician? Well, it's hard. You know, I have medical students coming through our uh, clinic here. They do an elective. And uh, my first question usually is, uh, uh, so you know, you're looking at lifestyle medicine. Have you heard of Dean Ornish? You know, Dean Ornish is sort of an icon. Dean Ornish is the first, the first person that documented with um, uh, sophisticated uh, uh, assessment tools that you can actually uh, open up the coronary arteries uh, with a dietary lifestyle approach. So Dean Ornish is sort of a man that probably one of these days will get a Nobel Prize. He is one of these sacred uh, saints in the uh, lifestyle medicine movement. Uh, outstanding scientist, cardiologist, uh, Harvard-trained, and uh, you know, uh, impeccable uh, credentials. So I asked these medical students, "How many of you know of Dean Ornish?" Two people. The first oh, wow. one, said, the first one said, "Well, I think he was a dean, wasn't he?" <laughs> no, no. <laughs> nice guess. And then the second one said, "No, I, I think I know. Uh, isn't he the man that?" Um, that uh, was a leader of some kind of a health cult. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I mean, I almost wanted to kick this young physician's on her chins. 
I mean, this was so sad. I mean, here's a man that has shown that you can open up coronary arteries that within three to four to five weeks, many of the patients no longer have angina pain because when you change the diet, you thin down the blood and the thin down blood can get through these narrowed arteries much easier to reach the heart muscle and therefore you have no longer angina pain. I mean, here's a man that has done the ultimate proof of uh, what Pritikin had thought was happening in his day. And then in the medical profession, no idea. Uh, I, I talked to some of my medical students that just graduated here this last weekend, and uh, they're now young physicians. And I said, ever heard of Dean Ornish? No. I said, don't they teach it here at the medical school? No. Oh, really? No. So, you know, it's what you said is so true. Uh, there is a, uh, it's a, what should I say? It's a, conglomerate it, it, con, con, it, it's a it's it's a yeah yeah it's it's a group it's a it's a philosophy it's a closed system uh, where these new things don't easily get into it and maybe sometimes that's good that we have a profession that's very conservative because there's so many different ideas that are jumping up and down every day asking for attention. It's good that we have conservative uh, professionals uh, as physicians, but in the process, we also sometimes lose out on the next major revolution. And you know what I talked to you about earlier that I didn't know that you were such a revolutionary in China? Mm -hmm. I was looking for a word, velvet revolutionary. You know, a velvet revolutionary is someone, there's no blood letting involved. It's non-violent. It's just a revolution of the mind, a revolution of having new glasses, of seeing things differently. And I really want you to know that I really, really uh, appreciate the work that you are doing. And I would love to somehow have a little bit more dialogue with you to learn from you of what we can do in Fiji and other places. Oh my goodness. Hans, coming from you, that is truly like, you know, I mean, sometimes I feel like I'm all alone here in Canada when I'm doing this because we are not, you're, you are, thank you so much. I mean, you are surrounded by these incredible, you know, people around you and you've immersed yourself and you've created that. You've created, I think, a community of like-minded scientists around you. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of a lone ranger up here in Western Canada. You know, I can name three other doctors across Canada um, I know you have a lifestyle practitioner, um, a lifestyle medicine practitioner in White Rock that you tried to connect me with, and, and right. we are going to work to do something together up here for sure, um, because we just, you know, just like people need community when they're changing their lifestyle and their diet, mm -hmm. and that allows them to create healthy habits together, mm -hmm. um, you know, I... I think people in this world, when they're learning about food as medicine and then teaching it to others, we also need to support each other. And it is true. It is the one thing that I, I might be this, you know, thank you for the, I love the velvet um, revolution uh, term, and I'm going to hold that dear to my heart. Um, <laughs> you know, even though I never really stop to think what I'm doing, I'm just kind of like on the train doing it, mm. but it, it's true. And and, you know, I've helped people, I, a lot of my clients, and just the same as your patients as well, that when they come to me with a chronic disease, heart disease, diabetes, infertility, um, they also come to me with mental health issues, mm -hmm. panic attacks, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, and suicide. And, um, you know, we've showcased one 
one gentleman, Chris Brook, and we're going to be following him. We've already done two podcasts with him, but when he changed his lifestyle over to exactly what you teach, um, changed his diet, you know, his suicidal tendencies left, his anxiety, his panic attacks left, um, and it's helped him tremendously. And he was in the British um, British Royal Air Forces, and he said if he ever had learned this before joining um, the Royal Air Forces, there is no way he could ever have joined because there's no way he could have taken a person's life mm. at all. Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about this, like this revolution, this velvet revolution where there's no bloodshed, I truly believe that it can apply to everything. When people eat this way, they have mental clarity. They're able to have make decisions. They see the connectedness of life as well. When you talk about eating the corpse, with, they can't eat the corpse anymore because they see that, you know, we are all one as well. So, I mean, I do, I love that term, velvet, yeah, revolution. Hey, listen, uh, you may feel sort of uh, alone up there, uh, uh, but you know, I, uh, I still carry my social security number from Canada. I used to live in <laughs> Canada when I came from Germany. So, you know, and uh, since you're living up there in Vancouver, Whistler, hey, you just sent me an invitation and I'd be glad to come to Whistler with my wife and spend some uh, beautiful days in the mountains, the summer mountains of, of Whistler there. That'd be fabulous. And I want you to know that uh, whatever I can do to, um, to strengthen your sense of uh, your part of all of us, uh, I mean, I'd be happy to do that. Oh my gosh, thank you. And you know, we are gonna have you up here. One of the things we want to start and that we realize that Canada's lacking is the um, plant-based whole food lifestyle medicine conference in mm-hmm. Canada. Yes. And you know, when and it was fantastic to be down. I went to two conferences, the PCRM conference and then the plantrician conference. And, you know, a thousand physicians at each conference. It was like I was in heaven. Um, and then I came back and I realized we do need this in Canada because yes. uh, we have too few Canadian doctors that um, look at the science that actually practice this science um, of lifestyle medicine. So I do want to create a conference up here and you're definitely on the list of speakers we'd love to have. So you are going to come to Whistler. <laughs> I would be glad to come. I'd be honored to come to Whistler. Uh, it's next to paradise. I mean, really. Um, it is I also want you to really uh, connect with Dr. Spangel in White Rock there in Vancouver. He just did a recent TED talk, T-E-D, and mm-hmm. it was a fabulous talk. As a physician, he has written several books, and uh, you will find uh, a comrade in arms in him that is very you know, sophisticated. He's elegant. He's not one of those fanatics. You know, We have to be very careful in uh, our uh, lifestyle medicine field that as we begin to uh, understand uh, and see the power, the therapeutic power of lifestyle change in uh, changing disease, stopping diabetes, stopping high blood pressure, stopping heart disease, opening up these arteries again. As we see this, it's very easy to become super enthusiastic and in the process you drive people away. Yeah. This, is the greatest, this is the greatest fear, that's the greatest challenge that I have in our CHIP program with 85,000 graduates. When I have graduation, I always tell them, be sure, I know you want to tell all your loved ones about what they can do to, to, to get better health. And I know that uh, you're very eager to reach them, your kids and your uncles and everybody else. But 
you have to be very careful. You have no right to impose what you have begun to understand as the new science. You have no right to push it on other people. The only language they understand is that you're modeling for them and you do it with great love and great care. You're not the food police. You don't put people down. You're not a judgmental person. You are just the most loving person that ever walked the earth because that's the only way that you can really help people to actually begin to look at a different way of um, providing the finest medical care. And that finest medical care is provided by the body itself. The body has an internal healing capacity, but you have to put the right raw materials into the system. I mean, you cannot drive a, uh, a Ferrari for very long if you pour diesel fuel into the tank. You gotta put high octane fuel in it. And the same thing with the human body. Once you give the body a chance to have these superfoods, very simple foods, foods like fruits. Yeah, that's right. And vegetables, that's right. And um, you, put a, you eat a lot of beans and lentils and you have a lot of whole grains, not white flour, but whole grain foods, maybe a few nuts to boot. And you could keep, you know, those M&Ms to a minimum. And, you know, you have these um, soda pops uh, for maybe a special occasion only, you know, and maybe, maybe you want to have some meat once in a while. You know, I have no real issue with that, but I think we need to move in the direction towards simple foods. And as we do, you begin to understand that your mind begins to open up to more and more and more. It becomes very natural for doing the right thing to the best ability that you can. But we got to see it as a stepwise progression and not something as of tomorrow, no more M&Ms. As of tomorrow, no more potato chips. No, it doesn't work. We need to help people to let them know that we are nice people. We're actually normal people. We just love <laughs> people. And we want people to experience the joy that I have seen in 85,000 people around the world. I mean, let me give you a, a little example here while I'm on my, uh, while you're listening so carefully there. Um, I love it. I love it. Keep going. <laughs> I was in Manila the other day, you know, in the Philippines. And, um, and my wife is from the Philippines, and we've been married for 49 years. Happy life, really. So uh, I'm there with my wife, and I'm in the hotel lobby there, and a woman comes to me. A woman, she's about 40-some years of age. She has a little baby on her arm, and she comes to me. She says, Dr. Deal, what are you doing here in Manila? I can't believe it. You're my hero. You have given me this baby. And my wife wow. is looking at me and said, I said, I beg your pardon? This is your baby. I want you to see my, your baby. I mean, I looked around the lobby. Is anybody hearing this? Uh, I mean, I have to defend myself now. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is... and my, my wife, I mean, she's not really too worried about things, but she kind of raised her eyebrows a little bit there, you know. This woman is so declaratory that I want you to see your baby. Ooh. Then, <laughs> I know what you mean, what she means. Yeah. And, and then she says, you know, my husband and I, we tried for 13 years to have a baby. It didn't work because I was overweight. Mm -hmm. I came into your CHIP program. I lost the weight and I conceived for my husband. You are the one that helped me to become a mother. We are so happy. You know, of course, I felt, uh, you know, a little relief. <laughs> Not really. <laughs> <laughs> 
goodness. I, I, mean, I, I was overjoyed. You know, I was overjoyed. I mean, we, we oftentimes don't realize that there are many conditions in life that become impacted by this so-called Western diet. You know, yeah. in 1975, everything changed. When, when McDonald's appeared on the scene, the fast food came in and t- potatoes turned into potato chips and water that we used to drink turned into, put, into uh, soda pop and uh, our beans that we used to eat turned into um, uh, steaks. You know, everything changed. We are in a totally different diet today that's totally um, determined by uh, uh, unusual tastes. Uh, we are looking for... Um, uh, it's almost an addictive thing, like you mentioned earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. We don't even realize anymore what real food is like. And what you said earlier, when you when you mentioned that we show them what a potato looks like, you're right. Yeah, <laughs> it's this is the epidemic of the time. Like the disease for sure is an epidemic. You know, the cancer, the chronic diseases, and the other chronic diseases like the type two diabetes and the, you know, hypertension and the um, obesity and excess weight and depression. And I mean, they're all inflammatory diseases, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and we really are, but the epidemic is the fact that we have lost touch with what real food is. And you know, I tell this story, I probably told this story a hundred times, but when I was just in Africa, in Malawi, where I was born, visiting my grandmother, who's 91, and she's virtually lived drug-free her whole entire life. And, you know, she doesn't have any electricity. There's no plumbing. She has to walk two hours to get water. She's 91 years old. But the thing, when I gave her my t-shirt and, you know, she doesn't read, so I couldn't give her my book, but I gave her one of our t-shirts that said, eat real to heal. And she had, my mom had to translate and she said, what does that mean? Eat real to heal. And my mom tried to explain what real food was. And she's like, but what do you mean bread? Like she didn't know what bread was like the concept of that it can go in a bag and sit on a shelf because, you know, they have to take all their grains and literally pound them by themselves into flour. So they keep all the nutrients there and Mm. then they make the flour, but you can't keep it on a shelf because that type of flour goes rancid so quickly. So when we tried to explain to her like, well, there's food that you buy in a grocery store and it comes in a bag. And she's like, why would they put food in a bag? Like, why wouldn't you just take it from, so like she truly eats the lifestyle that we're teaching and lives a lifestyle that we're teaching. But the epidemic is that people don't know what real food is anymore. Yes. Yeah, that's quite a story there. I didn't know that you were born in Malawi. Yeah, in Malawi. I left when I was four and came to Canada. And you know how you talked about earlier in the study where, you know, when uh, the Japanese left and Mm. came to the West, that Mm. they started to develop the same Western diseases. Mm. Well, my mom had never had a cavity in her whole life. And she went to dentists when she was in Africa, but she left when she was 27 um, and came to um, Western Canada. Mm. And it was interesting because within the first two years, she started to develop cavities at the same rates as Canadians. Mm. There you go. You know, uh, since we're talking about uh, global aspects, right? Uh, Mm. I'm in Saudi Arabia a couple of years ago and uh, the Saudis, uh, you know, they're becoming more and more aware 
that they need to change their economy because that oil will not last forever. And they're beginning to also realize that they need to do something about their diseases because they have now the Western diseases. And they need to find a way to curtail and prevent these diseases or perhaps try to arrest and reverse them. And so they're becoming interested in lifestyle medicine. So I spent some time there and one of the physicians took me aside and he said, you know, our kings, you know, in the 1970s, in the 1980s, they would die at 80, 85 years of age. They would eat very simple foods. Uh, and yet, he said, today, our kings have bypass surgery at 49 years of age. Yeah. Some Westerners. And, you know, when I went to Saudi Arabia, I was becoming very much aware that I was facing some of the largest women in the world. As a matter of fact, not only women, but also men. And men in a very unusual way, they collect most of their weight in the midsection. Men. Okay. Yeah. And so, you know, it looked rather almost a little bit, uh, what shall I say, grotesque. I mean, I've never seen so many pregnant men in all my life. Because they looked like they were pregnant. I mean, they looked like they were in their second trimester. And this is all part of the westernization of the diet of these countries. Yeah. And I think it's funny. It's interesting that you bring that up because just see, I have an eight, well, I have three kids, but my youngest is eight years old. And, you know, we were just driving somewhere probably to take her to gymnastics. And there was a man on the side of the road waiting to cross the street. And same thing. He did look like he was just about to give birth. And <laughs> my daughter, and he really did. And my daughter said, why does that man look pregnant? And so, you know, she knows every organ in the body. She, you know, she's heard me give these talks a million times and she loves, you know, we have an anatomy Jane. It's a doll that basically you can take out all the organs and put them back in. And so she, you know, she said, you know, his liver looks inflamed. And I said, oh, yeah, I his liver and his large intestine and all the organs in the body are just mm. so swollen and covered in this, you know, um, mm. this you know, essentially fat, the body is just trying mm -hmm. to deal with it. So it just mm -hmm. stores it. And it really truly is an epidemic. And, but the thing is, is I see all of these other nations around the world where they're recognizing that it was the diet that did that because it's only affected them within the last 20 years yes. versus, yes. you know, we've yes. had these really aggressive food industry yes. corporations that have been for the last hundred years, really pushing, you know, the refined sugar, the refined um, fats and the refined carbohydrates and all of these unhealthy processed packaged foods for the last hundred years in North yes. America. Yes. You know, when you talk to Dr. Spangel in, at White Rock, um, talk to him, ask him, how do you train? How do you teach your patients? Because after all, you know, you have limited time as a physician per patient, right? In America, yeah. we have about seven, eight, nine, ten 10 minutes. That's it. In 10 minutes, you have to diagnose the ill, match it with a pill, send them home with a bill. Next one, please, right? It's de really dehumanizing. Well, it's a little bit different in Canada, but even there, you have a lot of time pressures. And I said, so you, how, how do you handle these time pressures that you have as a physician? You have to see so many patients every day. He said, well, Hans, I'm using the CHIP program. I see. Mm -hmm. And this chip program, of course, is 19 videos. And he enrolls these people in a group process where they go through the program in 10, 11, 12 weeks. And then they discuss it. They watch the movie for about 45 minutes. And then they discuss for the next 45 minutes, what did you see? What uh, struck you as uh, uh, interesting? 
what would you disagree with? And so out of this discussion then, which is really adult learning at its best, comes the supportive structure. Then we come back to the group dynamics where people help people. And the physician becomes now a facilitator. The physician becomes an authority figure that uh, helps uh, when questions come up uh, that uh, lay people may not have any answers to, but they can then help out. But it's a different concept. And he said, Hans, I love it because I have to take patients off my off their blood pressure medications. I have to reduce their diabetic medications. And I tell them, just follow through on the program. Before you know it, I'll be always behind you. And before you know it, you will not have any medication in many cases altogether because your body will begin its healing process, especially if you catch it early enough. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And um, that's one, maybe one piece you can touch on. Um, I know we've been together for an hour and a half and I could probably talk to you, Hans, for like the next seven days straight. Um, but we, need what, do, we need to do this in Whistler. Yes, we do need to do this in Whistler for sure. <laughs> we are going to do this in Whistler. Um, what are, so if you can just help some of the listeners understand the nature of disease, because so many, like you touched on it earlier when people say like, oh, it's genetic. I have a genetic predisposition to type 2 diabetes when we, the science shows that's not the case mm. for most people. Mm-hmm. So how can you help people understand how all of their diseases are related, like the nature behind the disease itself, okay. chronic disease? Okay, let me just maybe, uh, that's a pretty broad uh, question. Let me maybe take it apart a little bit and maybe respond to at least some part. And that is um, many of our chronic diseases are related to the deterioration of our circulatory system. The human body has about 60,000 miles of blood vessels per person. Okay. And many of these uh, blood vessels are much thinner than the thickness of your hair. These are the capillaries. But it's the moderately and larger vessels, the aorta, the coronary arteries, the penal arteries, the cerebral arteries, the arteries, the major arteries in the body that become narrowed down. What happens inside the arteries is an accumulation of uh, what we call atherosclerotic plaques. Atherosclerotic plaques refers to um, some of a gruel that settles in on the inside of the artery and narrows them down. And when you open up the arteries, just like when you have a, a water line that has been accumulating calcium and it's calcified and the water doesn't go through it anymore, that's what happens in the human body. 65% of Uh, let me put it this way, Uh, people that are 50 years of age can expect a 60% narrowing minimum, 60% narrowing of some of their major arteries. So as these major arteries become narrowed down with the buildup of cholesterol, that's the big one, and with saturated fat and with dead cells that accumulate there and calcium, these uh, arteries now become uh, hardened. They become stiff. And they can break, for instance, if you have cerebral arteries, the arteries in the brain, they can break and then you have a stroke. Uh, They can clog up and seal off blood supply to the heart muscle. That means you have a heart attack. Um, You can have narrowing of the uh, uh, arteries of the man's uh, sex organ. 
penal arteries, they're very, very actually tiny in comparison to the coronary arteries, which are the heart arteries. And they can very easily begin to clog down. They can narrow down. And so then blood cannot flow in a very sustained fashion. And that's what it really means to develop impotence or ED. Uh, these are all interrelated uh, uh, chronic disease uh, expressions of one disease, and that disease is called atherosclerosis. It's called a narrowing of the arteries, and that is directly under control of our diet. Uh, exercise can help a little bit there, but the biggest fat, it's the diet that people have to recognize. And once you have uh, the larger concept that many of these diseases that we call degenerative or um, circulation-related chronic diseases, they all have something in common, and that is they are related to the arterial system, the blood, uh, the, the, the artery system, the circulatory system, there's no longer functioning at optimal levels. And when that happens, then the blood cannot longer bring optimal amounts of nutrients to all those 100 trillion cells in your body. And so the organs begin to deteriorate. They become inflamed. You have a large liver. You have, uh, you have um, uh, a lack of oxygenated blood going to the brain. So you develop uh, uh, loss of memory function. Uh, much of Alzheimer's today is at least in, to a large extent related to atherosclerosis affecting the uh, arteries to the brain. So once people begin to understand that this is um, related largely to um, uh, diet and circulation uh, deteriorating aspects, they begin to understand why when you make one change, like the dietary change for let's say bringing your blood pressure down, you will affect also the diabetes, you will affect the heart disease, you will affect the penal function, you affect all these functions all at once because you are changing the diet which affects every one of your arteries and your blood cells in and, and, and cells in the body. So that's the unitary concept that I think we need to have people to understand. When I went to school years ago, we had one diet for gout, we had another diet for heart disease, we had another diet for diabetes, another diet for uh, hypertension. We had different kind of diets. We used test, uh, our, our textbook was 775 pages thick. It was quite a tone. tome. Now, you know, we begin to understand there is one basic kind of a diet that we need to really take a look at. And that's a diet that has been around forever, but we don't seem to recognize that really fully. And that is a diet that it has lots of fresh fruits, not fruit juices, but fresh fruit, lots mm -hmm. of vegetables that has lots of whole grains. Like you talked about your grandmother in Malawi, you know, mm -hmm. whole grains, not coming in bags, but being used as it comes in nature and then having lots and we should all eat one cup of beans every day that's one of the most nutritious high fiber foods that people can have once you have this kind of a diet you don't worry about constipation anymore you don't worry about high blood pressure anymore your diabetes uh, begins to uh, reverse itself and uh, your weight goes down while you're eating more food but the right kind folks it's almost magical, and yet it's not magical. There's a direct relationship between food, food, diet, and disease. And you can change that relationship. You can improve your diet, you improve your disease. It's all up to you. You are in charge. Health is not so much a matter of, uh, of uh, um, chance. 
Health is a matter of choice. You are in charge. Take charge. Become the chairman of the board of your own health. And thank you so much. And my very best to you, Nicolette. I just enjoyed hearing what you have been doing in China, what you're doing in Canada. And I wish you all the very best, especially as you study those big subjects of statistics and everything else and work towards a PhD. My blessings are on you. Thank you so much for having me. Hans, thank you so much for being on the show. That was the best explanation about the nature of disease uh, that'll help people understand what they need to do next and, um, and for summarizing it um, so easily for people to be able to digest it. No pun intended there. Actually, it was intended. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. I hope you have an amazing day and we're going to have to do this again because I have a hundred more questions for you and I'm sure that our listeners are going to want to hear the wise words that come from all your years of experience and work out there in the world. So thank you for everything that you do. Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that episode. There was so much important information in there. And I hope that everybody who took the time to listen to this podcast from start to end, please go out there and implement these changes. Also, fire your doctor if they don't practice lifestyle medicine. If this podcast didn't teach you anything else, it you know, really should have taught you that you need to have a whole health team, a team of medical practitioners in every field. You need to have a team of healthcare workers in other practitioners, including physios and chiropractors. Uh, you need to have mental support workers. You need to have, you know, a place that you can release your stress. So you need to engage in exercise. So if that means hiring a coach or just getting together with your neighbor so you can go walking together every morning or every evening, get those 10,000 steps in. Really, this podcast was you know it was done with Dr. Hansdale so we can show you how important lifestyle medicine is to show you that the evidence has been there for decades and decades and decades so you have to stop denying that it exists if you've never taken the time to actually look at it because at the end of the day nobody else is going to be harmed from not looking at that evidence other than you you have the power to change your lifestyle by implementing these changes. You can turn your health around. You don't have to live and suffer with these chronic degenerative diseases, which are lifestyle diseases for the most part. Only about 3% of all diseases are truly genetic. And even then, if they are genetic, you can turn on the genes that promote health, turn off the genes that are presenting those symptoms that you're dealing with. And in a lot of cases, you can find relief from so many of the, of the, so much of the chronic pain, the inflammation, the lethargy, the fatigue, the, you know, all the symptoms that come along with having a chronic degenerative disease. So please read Dr. Hansdale's books, read our Eat Real to Heal book. You can get a copy of it and on Amazon, anywhere in the world. It has sold thousands of copies. It has helped so many people already, just as Dr. Hansdale's books and his programs that he offers through the various universities has as well. So check out the CHIP program, check out the Lifestyle Medicine Institute, and get your family doctor to register for the Lifestyle Medicine program. They will not regret it, and they will be able to help and even save 
hundreds and thousands of lives. So thanks so much for being with us on the Eat Real to Heal podcast. Check out our retreat that's coming up in October. I believe that we only have about one spot left for that. And we'd love to have you there where we can show you the power of food as medicine to heal your body. Thanks so much for being with us. Eat well, be well. 